ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. Really, really in great spirits at the moment. I can definitely, um, there's a lot of excitement going on in the world for sure, in my opinion. There's a lot of different pieces moving all over the place from a physical perspective and also from a metaphysical perspective, in my opinion, and things that I'm learning about from my own self and from what I'm researching. Watched a great documentary the other night. I would definitely recommend watching it. It is called um, it is called The Great Year. Really fascinating documentary about the ancients and what they understood about consciousness and how they predicted it using the Mayan calendar. Really fascinating. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. Also as well, guys, over the last few nights have been out in the garden nearly every single night looking at the night sky. The stars and the activity up there has been absolutely amazing to say the least. I'm just about to head out with my friend. We're going to a great vantage point at a place where I live where you can see the sky and the stars really well. There's rumours that there's also going to be a lot of activity in the sky tonight as well. A lot of uh, meteor showers as well. But besides that, there's a lot of um, funkiness going on up there for sure. Whatever is going on, there's a lot going on in the universe. That um, That is definitely for sure through my research and what I'm feeling inside myself. So it is exciting, it really is. I think this is what we're here for. The excitement in all this, all the things that are going on, in my opinion, are exciting. If we could put ourselves in any 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 game, in my opinion, I think we'd put ourselves right where we are now. It really is um, interesting times, to say the least. But anyway, in this podcast today, this one really is a powerhouse. If you weren't already excited about the mysteries of the universe, then you are even going to be more excited with this episode today. This one is with Anthony Peake. If you guys don't know who he is, he's been on the podcast many times in the past. He is he packs an absolute punch with things that he talks about. He's he's a brilliant author, in my opinion. One of the best one of the best researchers in terms of looking into the nature of reality and consciousness, in my opinion. He is the author of best, best-selling titles, The Out-of-Body Experience, The Infinite Mind, The Immortal Mind, Open Up the Doors of Perception, and his new book, which we talk about today, The Hidden Universe, which is an investigation into non-human intelligence, intelligences, which I know a really great title. And we do get into some really powerful stuff in this one. As always, this conversation goes all over the place. It really does. Yes, we talk about his book, but it also goes all over to other concepts as well that he talked about in other books. So it is a really good, it is a really great one. Like I said, this one, I know for a fact it is going to spice up your mind for sure and spice up your life. <laughs> I'm sure that's a song by Spice Girls or something. Spice up your life. Spice up your life. <laughs> anyway, this is going to spice up your mind for sure. And I just want to say as well, guys, in a few days from now, I'm going to be doing an Observing My Thought, a Q&A Observing My Thought. I put this out there in the, on my Instagram page, which is I am Dan Harrison, and I also as well put it in the, the Patreon supporters group. Already had so many amazing questions. So I'm letting you guys now know as well, if you want to send some questions over, please send them over to to the Ascend Podcast contact page on the website, or you can also send them via Instagram or the Ascend Podcast Facebook page. Whatever means you can, you can send them over as you'll find a way. But basically, I'm going to be doing an episode of Observe My Thoughts, where it's basically just all for you guys. I'm asking some of the questions that you want answered. Ask anything you want. I'm prepared to touch on every any single conversation. There is no censorship on this platform, and there never will be. Not if I can stop it anyway. <laughs> But there is going to be no censorship. You can talk, ask any question that you want. I'll dive deep down the rabbit hole and I'll do my best to answer every single question. Like I said, there's already been a lot of questions sent in. So 
potentially maybe have to do two or three of these things but definitely in the next few days there will be an observing my thoughts so if you want to send your questions over you'll find a way anyway so i love you all if you can as always check out the patreon page or the one-off donation option i love you all and enjoy this spicy spicy podcast with anthony peak peace out what i was i'll start there i was going to say that um obviously we've spoke many times on the podcast and i know i've read a lot of your books and you in the past you've wrote many different books around the topic of nature reality and consciousness and i know that in particular this new book that i want to talk about the day of the hidden universe which first off is a great title straight away you see Good that one, title yeah. and you just want to pick it up and read it it oozes sort of um intrigue intriguing intriguingness why why is sort of non-human intelligence the sort of the next piece in the puzzle to to the questions that you're asking? Well, I think it's because um, all through my writing career and all through the interviews I've done with people, the one consistent mystery seems to be the entities that people encounter when they're in altered states of consciousness, be it dreaming, be it an out-of-body state, be it facilitated by substances such as dimethyltryptamine. These entities seem to be more than just creations of the subconscious. Um, I'll give an example of this. Um, um, Dr. Carl Smith, um, one of my associates, is involved in a research um, set of research at Imperial College at the moment, financed, I think, by a guy called Anton Bilton. And he was explaining to me how he had had an experience whereby he had taken DMT under controlled circumstances, found himself in the DMC cube, cage, whatever you want to call a location that you seem to go to when you take have a DMT experience. And an entity came over to him during this experience and actually eyeballed him and said, you shouldn't be doing this this way, please don't do it. Then the entity then backed off. He then comes back, back down to this reality. And then a week or two later, he takes the DMT again, goes, pounds himself in exactly the same location and the same entity comes over and says, I told you last time, you shouldn't be doing it this way. Now, as Carl has said to me, um, what is the motivation to that creature? Because surely if Carl is using a particular process of understanding and, and getting out of his body and going into these places, this creature is telling him something that he shouldn't be doing. In other words, if it's some subconscious, it should be agreeing with him, and it doesn't. It disagrees. So my question in the book is, you know, what are these entities? What are their motivations? Are they independent of us? And are they, in if they are independent of us, what's the implications for the greater understanding of consciousness? I love that. It's interesting how that, that, that story is really fascinating. I've actually come across another similar, just to validate what you're saying as well, because you know I've spoken to many different people on this podcast. And a few other people have mentioned very similar stories with them cases. That one story that always sticks out in my mind was a guy called uh, Kevin Johnson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. No. But he's a guy who runs a, um, a float tank institute in Austin, Texas. And he's obviously experiencing a lot with float tanks. And he described on the podcast um, this encounter with an entity. Uh, um, I'm not sure how, if he said it was female or, or was what it was, but he basically encountered this interaction with an entity. And he, he does these really wild floats where he says he does overnight floats where he forgets how long he's been in there, 14 wow. hours, 15 hours and stuff. He loses complete sense of time. And he talks about this interaction with this entity anyway. And then he... Um, after doing the practice of float tanks, he decided that he was going to take ayahuasca. And he took ayahuasca, and in the ayahuasca ceremony, um, he met, obviously, a different type of entity. Then once he come back home and went to the float tank, the entity of Mother Ayahuasca came into the tank and said, what are you doing in the float tank? Because <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, what the reason that we believe we are independent entities now having this conversation is that you know, I've got no way of knowing. It's called the zombie complex. Yeah, it's called the idea of you could be an unthinking automaton. You could be a creation of my own subconscious. Yeah. And the only way that I, there's no way that I could know that. But when you do certain things that there are certain things that other human beings do and other entities do, which make you believe they're independent of you. Mm. And when the, the beings do something like that, it's suddenly, whoa, what is happening here? What does this tell us about? And these are the things that really intrigue me. What does the information tell us? about how the universe works. 
dream figures are really interesting for that area. I don't know how much re- research you've done into dream figures, but when you do look into dream figures, the um, I've had encounters where where you meet the dream figure and you obviously uh, there's a there's a scene that you see. You see it could all um, thought based could all thought based um, dream figures that are from my perspective, my reality, could they disappear? And every now and again, you will do it, and there'll be a couple of dream figures that'll turn around and they'll just look at you <laughs> like you're crazy or something, and like they know that you're dreaming or something. There's an, when you were speaking before as well about this, obviously this, these sort of non-human intelligences, I wanted to, to bring up and see your thoughts on this because we know now that science is getting better and better. And there is um, people talking about how the world that we live in now, there is so many different um, sensory perceptions that are going on all, all around us that we don't see. We know that dogs um, can see different colors. Even certain people see different colors and things so there it's not really out of the ordinary to suggest that there is um something that we can't see mm. that's going on around us at all times i would love to just see your thoughts yeah on well the thing is it's a well-known phenomenon it's called synesthesia mm. and synesthesia is when individuals perceive external reality in a different way to the way we do i mean for instance the the russian composer scribin uh, was a known synesthete and he used to the music he would see the music different notes would have different shapes and these things were consistent so clearly under certain circumstances our the brain becomes confused and areas overlap so the the kind of the center the the psych the visionary cortex might overlap in some way with the somatocentric cortex or it might overlap in other ways which gives us a totally different worldview now i call this worldview that what the world as it presents itself to me is a correct one-to-one relationship between what is really out there. I call this electromagnetic chauvinism. And the reason I call it this, you pointed out on it there, is that we see only a tiny, tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum. In one of my books, I do the do an anal- analogy, which I was very pleased with, actually, quite pleased me, this one, where I said, can imagine the electromagnetic spectrum, which is from radio waves to gamma rays. And you imagine the length of that to be the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi starts in a tiny lake in Minnesota, winds down the center of the United States, comes out in the the Gulf of Mexico. That's the length of the electromagnetic spectrum. And of course, it's all various forms of light. And when it comes down to electromagnetic, it's just light, but we just can't see it as light. The area we do see, which is the um, the visible part of light, by my calculations, would be about one and a half inches, about eight miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. But the rest of it is still there. The rest of it is still available to the senses. Now, we know, for instance, that the way in which a bee sees a flower is completely different to the way we see a flower because their their eyes work in different ways. So we know there are animals that hear things that we can't hear. We know that there are other animals, and there was a, a very famous paper written many years ago by a philosopher whose name always escapes me. I always say it's John Searle, but I don't think it was, called What It's Like to Be a Bat. And he pointed out how the bat perceives reality. And it's completely different. So what reality is the correct reality? And could it be that these entities that we see are in a just, just a slightly different vibrationary state and exist in a kind of a, a universe or a world that abuts us really closely? There's something said in the Quran, I think, where it says that other realities are as close as your jugular vein. Mm. And the idea that it is very close to you and it's just by a kind of shift of perception, what I call the Bohme, what I call the Huxleyan spectrum, just a slight shift can open up these others or other areas of perception. And I think this is what certain extraordinary exp- people have, and certain people have these experiences because just their sh- perceptual shift has changed slightly. But what we need to do is to work out the neurological correlates of this, and this is some exciting work that's being done at the moment. For instance, I don't even think it was the University of, of um, Sussex recently. They did a series of experiments. Uh, with people who are taking psilocybin. And what they did was they linked them up to, I think, to an fMRI scan, fMRI scan so they know which parts of the brain light up when somebody sees something. Mm-hmm. Now, when somebody's on psilocybin, they're obviously hallucinating and seeing other things. The curious thing is that they were looking for the areas of the brain that would light up to show which areas of the brain are active when somebody takes psilocybin. Much to their amazement, they discovered it was quite the opposite. Psilocybin switches parts of the brain off. Mm-hmm which means that the brain acts as an attenuator. The brain is something that stops us perceiving the full whack of the reality that's out there. It cuts things out. So what 
psychedelic substances and entheogens do is they shut the brain's ability down to be able to block out the information, if that makes sense. It's interesting you mentioned something before just to dive into. That's really fascinating, by the way. I've got questions around that as well, but I've got all five questions in my head. When you said before about these, there's an independence to these um, these entities. Um, so we know that our consciousness, there's a theory now that our consciousness could be creating this reality that we're in now. Just to play a sort of devil's advocate, I mean, I don't I don't feel this myself, but I'm just trying yeah, to, yeah. for the listener, I'm trying to play devil's advocate because there will be people out there who are asking this question. Oh, of course, they have to. Um, and I, I definitely feel it could be both things, there's both things going on at the same time, but do you feel that um, these entities also could be a part of our, our minds They're both. at the same time of being something else? They're both. Yeah. This is the whole point and probably the, uh, the conclusion I come to in terms of uh, the, inf- uh, the hidden universe is that these entities are both use our thought patterns and use our perceptions to come into existence. So there's a direct relationship between what they are and our thoughts. And I use this term quite precisely. I use the term egregorial. Mark Stavish, who is a, a really famous esoteric writer, American esoteric writer, wrote a book on egregores a few years ago. And Stavish argues that an egregore is any form of collective belief system that human beings or other beings get together. So, for instance, if there's you and myself and a group of people having a really lively discussion about poltergeists, say, and we get so enthralled by this that the, the our, coll- our consciousness is coming together, creates something greater than the collective group. It's something over and above. Many years ago, there was a famous book written on the mass psychology of crowds and the idea that when a crowd of people gets together, a football crowd or whatever, a political rally gets together, something is created that's greater. And of course, the Nazis knew this, the Nuremberg rallies, the way they could whip people up. Now, this creation of something more, I believe, can bring about, can be used into, it creates an energy form. Maybe it's organ energy, you know, to, to, to coin the phrase of um, uh, Wilhelm Reich. Uh, who, interesting researcher. Yeah, and his argument about organ energy. Now, I argue, for instance, that if you go into a room and people have been arguing, you can sense the atmosphere. Mm. It's as if some kind of energy form has been created. Now, can this energy be manipulated? Can this energy bring about other entities? And I cite, for example, in the book, the fascinating case of a group of people in the early 1970s who got together at, in Toronto and they created a, uh, they got together and they were doing playing with a Ouija board. I don't know if you've heard about this case at all. I have never heard of it. Oh, okay. I obviously know what a Ouija board is. Okay. They were playing with Ouija boards and they were quite fascinated the way in which the Ouija board seems to take on a character of its own as if when you do Ouija there seems to be something that the collective unconscious creates. And what they decided to do was to get together and think about think about whether they could create a spirit. So what they did was they worked on this for a long time and they con- con- they they created a spirit called Philip. And they argued, they got in their own minds that Philip was a uh, an English aristocrat in the 16th century, 17th century. And he'd been unlucky in love. He was a Catholic aristocrat and he fell in love with a, a young Protestant girl. And because of this, he lost all his, all his money and everything else as well. They just created this as an idea. The spirit then started manifesting. The spirit started manifesting when they were together. Philip started to come into reality. Philip was being drawn from somewhere else by the collective unconscious of the group. Now, again, if in the book I discuss a, a lady called Alexander Neal, who was a Belgian-French explorer in the 19th, from 1910 to about 1920, 1930. And she spent a great deal of time in Tibet. And she had been taught certain magical techniques of Tibet, including the creation of these beings called tulpas. And tulpas, again, are thought entities. They are beings that can be created. And her and her group, they created a little monk, a little Buddhist monk. And it became, they could see it in three-dimensional space. But after a time, the monk started to develop independence. And it suddenly became much more malevolent, much more nasty, much more evil. And they realized they had to get rid of it. So they spent a period of time trying to actually exercise this entity because it it drew from them and brought itself into creation. And I think this is the, the secret of these entities. So yes, they are both part of us and not part of us. They're part of psychic, a psychic energy. 
as Paul Eno, the American, very, very interesting American researcher in this, he calls them um, parasites. He thinks they feed off our fear. Mm, They can then create fear, and then the fear is generated in such a way that it's sustenance to them. It gives them strength. It gives them power. Because why do hauntings, why why do these things create fear in us Mm. unless there's a reason for it? Very interesting that. So it's the way that you described to me there is sort of like an interplay between between these entities and human consciousness. I wanted to ask you the question as well as how do you think that these entities can manipulate this reality? Well, I think just like ourselves, they are they are creating this reality as they go along. I mean, uh, without going into great detail on the quantum physics of this. And as you know, I take my quantum physics very seriously. I don't just cite it as some kind of new age person saying, oh, it's quantum energy and everything else, which is total nonsense. What we're talking here about is is pure evidence from the latest research and the research over since the 1920s, since 1926, in effect, when Schrodinger came out with his Schrodinger's equation. Um, But effectively, reality, external reality is not physical as we believe it to be. Uh, In the book, I use the analogy that um, the uh, reductum ad, ad um, lapidum uh, in 1774 um, uh, Samuel Johnson the guy that wrote the dictionary was touring with his with his associate Boswell in Scotland and at that time um, a book had been written by Berkeley the British philosopher, English philosopher and Berkeley had written uh, had brought him an idea called idealism the idea that it's thought that creates reality And uh, Johnson was so dismissive of this, he kicked a stone and he said, I refute it thus and kicked a stone. Now in the book, I then take that to its logical conclusion. And I say that that was not dismissing anything. That's a fallacy because of course he didn't kick a stone at all. We never contact anything. There's nothing in three dimensional reality we touch. Something called electrostatic uh, repulsion that stops you. You feel you're feeling the table as you touch it now, but you're not. You know, you're never touching anything. But on top of that, that table itself is 99.9999999996 empty space. Okay? That's the precise figure. And if anybody wants to challenge me on that, go and look it up. It's empty space. The only thing that's actually inside the atom, that's how empty an atom is. An atom has got a nucleus, and it's got these tiny little electrons whizzing around and electrons themselves are point particles. Point particles has no extension in space. But it gets creepier because you realize the reason you see the world around you is because photons are bouncing off various surfaces, giving you the, the visual world that you see. Photons, little bits mm-hmm. of electromagnetic radiation, what I was talking about before, the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. But these are the carriers. They carry the message. They are point particles as well, but they also have zero mass which means they have no existence in three-dimensional space. But on top of that, they can only ever travel at the speed of light, Mm. which means that from their point of view, there is no time. So the things that are illuminating my face now, allowing you to see this, do not have any contact, do do not exist in space and do not exist in time. And yet this is what makes us see the reality that's 99, I won't go through it again, Mm. empty space. So really suddenly when you start looking at quantum physics and you start looking at particle physics, the whole thing just reduces into nothing because even the solid parts of the the, the, the nucleus, they're not they're, they're broken down. They're not basic particles. They're broken down into quarks. And there are six different types of quarks, I think. And depending upon the mixture of the quarks is what a particle is. But the quarks themselves are point particles. Mm. So billions of point particles come together to create an illusion of solidity. When you were saying before about the, the, the light example, which is mind-blowing and stuff, is in, in how we believe that this reality is so fixed in things. And just to take a little deeper, I think I've heard you mention this in your book, actually, where you talk about the inner light, because that whole essence of the inner light to me is fascinating, because the general concept of when you were saying before about how we can see these objects around us, and it's, it is really hard to put your mind in the context that this table isn't really here, or that light isn't really there. But when you have a lucid dream or um and you you close your eyes at night there is an inner light yeah could you just go a bit more yeah it's long it's long intrigued me that when you when you're in a dream environment there are shadows Mm -hmm. which means there's a light source so what is the light source because you are seeing in the same way that you're seeing but you're not using your visual cortex 
But again, it is curious here because tests have been done to ask people to imagine, for instance, playing tennis. And when they do it, they scan the brain, fMRI scan the brain to see what the brain is doing. And when you're imagining something, exactly the same parts of the brain light up as well you're not imagining it, when you're seeing it in th- or going through the actions themselves. So what is the light that illuminates this inner world? What is the light? People will turn around and say, okay, you press your eyeball and you get what's called phosphenes. They're the, you know, you bang your head and you see these little stars moving around. Yeah. Technically, they're known as phosphenes. But they're light sources that don't have a source in external reality. Yeah, now, the argument is, well, all that's happening is is that the ner- the sense, the nerves of the retina are being stimulated to kind of think it's light, but they still create this image of a light source. Now, I think there is a different form of light. In 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 um, fascinatingly enough, in um, I think it's Greek, the Greek Orthodox religion. They have something called taberic tab taberic light. I think it is, and this again is the inner light that illuminates the inner world. Now, there's been research done that says that this light is actually light created by cells. It's light created, it, it's bio, it's biophotons. It's actually light created by life itself. So this could explain Karelian photography. It could explain how people see auras because there seems to be light given outwards from the body outwards. So there's light coming in, external light. But there's in, and again, there's an associate of mine called Istvan Bokken. Professor Istvan Bokken, who's been researching this for many years. He's a Hungarian, but he's now based in, in the USA. And he's written a whole series of papers on biophotons. Now, if this inner light means more, like for instance, I get hypnagogic imagery and hypnopompic imagery quite powerfully. These are the images you see just as you're going to sleep or waking up. And it normally starts with a light form. It's a light, it's a kind of a flash of light, or it's a flicker of light, and then I'll see somebody's face in profile, and they'll turn and look at me. Now, again, what is curious here is there's a look of recognition. The face that I'm seeing is a real face, and it's a real person looking at me as if they're seeing me within their environment. Mm. Now, again, their face is illuminated, and there's the flash of light. So where is this coming from? And I think it's all to do, and it can be fulled right back to even to the role of the pineal gland, because the pineal gland is an ossified eye. You know, there's a, uh, an animal called the tutura, which is a lizard that is found on some islands off New Zealand. And its third eye is literally a third eye in the center of its head. And it's light sensitive. We know that the pineal gland itself is light sensitive, but it's light sensitive to what? We know that it sits above the optic chiasma, which is where light, where the signals of light are sent to the optic, uh, to the visual cortex. And it's light sensitive because it needs to create melatonin. It needs to know it's dark. But it sees other light. And again, is this the light that illuminates dimethyltryptamine experiences? Is this the light that is created by the Lucia light device that I talk about a lot? Because again, you use the use, 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 use Lucia light device, you will see the most amazing light show. It is incredible. The light show you see, there's different colors, there's different shapes. But these are all being created by your subconscious. But it is stimulating your visual field in some way. Very powerful points. Do you think the first thing that caught my mind there was, is, so like you said, the pineal gland we know is um, related to melaton- melatonin releasing within the body. Yes. Do you think that the Monday world could be actually hindering our ability to do that? Because the reason why I'm thinking in my head here is, is that if we look back at ancient cultures in the past, it's clear to me that they were operating more from more than us from a place of um, non-locality. Yes. And it seems to be that the pineal gland the research that I've done plays an important role in sort of mediating your perception of reality. And if if we're not, um, if we're ch- changing the whole trajectory of evolution by having too many lights on like we've got now all yeah. the time before we go to bed, and um, we're not exposing ourselves to the night sky, we're not sitting around campfires anymore, do you think that could be um, sort of de-evolving our, the human brain for a sense? I think that's a very, very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, I have a section on... Um, there's a, there is a tribe um, in northern Colombia, and they train their shamans in a very interesting way. They take very young children that show shamanic abilities, and they lock them away in a cave. And they lock them in a, way, in a cave for eight or nine years, where they don't have any external light stimulus. And these youngsters, they end up being called mamas, which are kind of the shamanic term that this tribe uses. And it, it is clear that 
they're doing something because they're trying to develop the inner light within the person to allow the person to see things that we can't see because we're blinded by the natural light around us. You know, effectively, people turn around and say, oh, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in spirits. I don't believe in anything. But we live within boxes. We live in buildings. We drive around in cars. We never, ever or very rarely go out and attune with nature. You know, feel your feet, your bare feet on grass and sit underneath the stars. Now, again, with our ancestors, one, you know, we have this kind of idea that they were more primitive than we were. You know, their brains were exactly the same as ours. They had the same kind of rationality. All they didn't have was the scientific understanding. But they reacted in the same way to the things they saw and the things they perceived, and they tried to rationalize and understand them. And we know that they saw extraordinary things. Um, in the beginning of the book, I have a whole section on cave paintings and cave paintings showing what are self-evidently greys that people were seeing when they were living yeah, in caves. A lot of them actually are really interesting. They're fascinating, particularly, I don't know if you're aware, there's, um, at the end of 2017, they found a whole series of caves in northern India, which hadn't been, nobody had been in there for at least 10,000 years. And they're the best ones to look at. Oh, well. they are incredible. They are incredible. And in the book, I give you the full reference of where they're located. And these caves, the cave paintings show greys. Absolutely, there is no question they're greys. Um, so what were these people seeing? Now, you could say, again, they were just painting what call, they call entropic images. Mm. These are the kind of the, the spiral patterns and the cobweb patterns that people see. Possibly. But entities, you know, as people argue, and I get very annoyed about this, people will turn around and say, oh, come on, they're just stylized human figures. Why do you think they're just stylized human figures? Have you ever seen the paintings in Lascaux and um, various other cave paintings around the world? They knew how to paint bison with extreme precision. Yeah. They knew how to paint giraffes. They knew how to paint other animals. But these creatures, and they knew how to paint human beings correctly. But there are occasional creatures like um, the bridge scene. There's um, a painting, cave paintings down in the Drakensberg Mountains and uh, in uh, something called the Junction Shelter. Uh, which Graham Hancock went to a few years ago. In the Junction Shelter, there are these entities which have huge elongated heads and big black eyes. These images then reoccur. They are found in these, these, these cave paintings in, in northern um, India. They're found in cave paintings in, in Sarawak, I think, and places like that in the Far East. So they're consistent. So why can't we just argue they were painting what they were seeing? You know, it's like my argument about deja vu. You know, why can't we just believe deja vu is because you have been here before yeah, and not come up with these incredibly complex theories for what clearly and self-evidently is a short-term precognition. And you feel it as well, don't you? And you feel it and you sense it. I get very annoyed about it. You know, we, we the scientists always say we must apply Occam's razor to things. Occam's razor being the most simple solution is normally the correct one. But when it comes to extraordinary experiences, they do the opposite. Yeah, they bypass it. They bypass the Occam's <laughs> razor and come up with these incredibly ornate theories when they never ask the person experiencing it. And I've seen people be precognitive in an altered states of consciousness. I've seen it happen. I've witnessed it. I know it happens. So instead of denying it, let's say, okay, this phenomenon takes place. Let's understand it. Yeah. But no, it's let's find all these crazy excuses these crazy theories, you know, the law of large numbers yeah. is the classic one that they keep coming up with, you know, nonsensical. Somebody turns around and says, I saw, which one of my witnesses has done, saw Concord in France with its tail on fire, crashing with, with, uh, with a lot of German people on board. Statistical chance? Okay, I have a dream. I micro dream during the night. People argue that you could, you know, with billions of people on the planet, hundreds of micro dreams a night, somebody's going to dream a plane crash yeah. and the plane crash happens the next day. Uh, Concorde had never crashed before. Concorde crashed quite specifically in France and it had its tail on fire. That's not just seeing a plane crash. Yeah, definitely. That was a precise, precise prediction mm -hmm. and it came to pass. Yeah, definitely. When you you slightly touched on it there and all states of consciousness, because it seems to be that um, obviously the conversation what we're talking about here is, is the ability... That, that obviously you just talk about in your book about how these entities can, they can, they ha, have found some sort of a way to to manipulate sorry manipulate this physical reality. Whereas there's there is definitely certain people I, f I feel who can who can like go into deep states of meditation and things like that. But on a more physical level, it's it's a lot. We feel like us as human beings seem to me like we don't have the ability to do that as much as they do. 
do you when we all the question i want to ask you is when we alter our consciousness it seems to be that we once we alter our consciousness whether it's through deep states of meditation um psychedelics and things like that it seems to be that we can then step into that world i wanted wanted to know i think you talked about this in your book the doors of perception is that what it's related to maybe our sort of the, the, the normal sort of um, default mode within the brain or something, the doors are, are now blasted open or something. Correct, yeah. It's what I call the Huxleyan spectrum. Yeah, really interesting. And in opening the doors of perception, the, the basic premise of opening the doors of perception is, again, referring back to the doors of perception by Aldous Huxley, written in 1954, uh, where Aldous Huxley, argued, he had an experience with mescaline and he suddenly saw the world in a completely different way. And he then referred back to um, the poem from, I think, Auguries of Innocence by William Blake, mm-hmm. where William Blake said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see as the universe as it really is infinite. And he took that idea and taking on the ideas of somebody called C.D. Broad, who was a British philosopher, and Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, argued the point I was making before that the brain is an attenuator. It takes information out. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, under normal circumstances when people aren't taking mescaline, aren't taking DMT and everything else, what facilitates these altered states of consciousness? And in opening the doors of perception, I argue that there are levels by which the brain, brain's effectiveness at being an attenuator and taking out information gets less and less effective. And I believe that most neurotypicals um, only see the world with the doors solidly closed. We only see what the brain allows us to see. It allows us to function within this simulation. We only need so much information to function. But certain individuals suddenly, say for instance, when uh, somebody has classic migraine, which I am a classic migrainer. That's one of the things that fascinated me. When you have classic migraine, you see things that aren't there. Your visual field breaks down and you sense things that are not there or supposedly not there. And of course, the definition of an hallucination Mm -hmm. is that I'm perceiving something that nobody else is perceiving. Doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that only one person is perceiving it. So again, hallucinations doesn't mean anything. It's just a word. It's just a label. They don't know what hell hallucinations are. So then when the doors are wider open, I think it's when people experience things such, uh, experiences such as temporal lobe epilepsy. In temporal lobe epilepsy, the, the, the temporal lobes seem to just open up channels of communication even greater. So the doors are even wider open. But temporal lobe epileptics, or people who experience temporal lobe epilepsy in classical migraine, and in the book, by the way, I actually show the overlapping areas. I actually show the areas where classic migraine molds into temporal lobe epilepsy. There is an overlap area uh, where that takes place. So neurologically, people know that there's overlap. That This is a continuum. It's not just migraine, temporal lobe epilepsy, or whatever. The other side of that, then some temporal lobe epileptics really start to see world, the world in an incredibly way. Like my associate, Myron Dial, who will be with me at the event that we will both be at in California uh, in, uh, in, at the end of May. And Myron is a temporal lobe epileptic who's moving into schizoform. So he's moving in from temporal lobe epilepsy into what we would roughly define as schizophrenia. And there's a continuum of movement into schizophrenia. And with schizophrenia, and by the way, before people criticize me for using schizophrenia as a term, I, I invested time in actually spending a lot of time talking to a guy called Professor Alec Jenner, who was the world's leading authority on schizophrenia about six or seven years ago. I was facilitated contact by a friend of mine. I've written a book on near-death experiences, uh, Australia, an Australian consultant psychiatrist called Mahendra Pereira. And Mahendra Pereira studied under this guy at the University of Leeds, I think. And I had a long conversation with him. And I asked Alec, and I said, what is schizophrenia? You spent all your life, your whole career. And he said, I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. What we do is we label it. There are certain behaviors of people who see the world in a different way, and we call it schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. When Bloiler came up with his term years ago, it was just observations. It's not based upon anything concrete. So what is schizophrenia? Well, I think schizophrenia is when the doors of perception are blasted so open that the person can no longer function effectively because they are seeing the world behind the world. They're seeing beyond this simulation, mm-hmm. beyond the, the digitized version of reality that we think is real. And they see through it into what I call the pleroma. I call this the kenoma. The kenoma is the reality we live within. 
Philip K. Dick's idea of the black iron prison. Blake called it the mind-forged manacles. It's the trap we're in. It's the place you escape from when you escape from Plato's cave. Mm. And you realize that there's shadows on the wall. But the problem is that you're not ready for it. This is why mystics spend so much time training themselves. This is why people who go into meditation train themselves to be ready to see the true reality, the, the hologram yeah. behind the reality. But, temporal, but people with schizophrenia, it just blows their mind. They literally can no longer function because they're seeing things that supposedly aren't there. They're hearing voices, their visual systems break down, their time flow breaks down. Mm -hmm. This is one thing that people don't know great about schizophrenics or people who experience schizophrenia. And I know people whose children or friends or brothers and sisters are, they live in a timeless place. Mm -hmm. Their time doesn't flow like ours. They see the future, they see the past, they see everything. So that's the continuum. And I then added on to that, I believe there are other elements here. I think that um, Alzheimer's disease is in there. Dementia is part of it. Dementia opens up the doors of perception. I also believe that people who have Asperger's syndrome, there is something within, um, within autism, something called the, uh, the, the, the loud world syndrome. And this is because the children are hearing so much, they cannot they cannot deal with it anymore. They're hearing sounds, they're sensing things, they're sensing people's emotions. And this is what this is what autism is. Mm -hmm. Simply that. Do you agree points? Do you do you think do you think that like you said you explained a couple of um, different certain circumstances how the doors of perceptions can be open. It's clear to say that all um to, well you alter your consciousness through psychedelics you can do it. And like the things you've just described there, it's clear that certain people can can see different things and obviously live different realities and stuff do you think that um that doing the work sort of going down the, the journey of of doing the inner work can also do that yeah because i think you is it the book um the i forget the title wrong the damien the, the damon damon yeah, yeah. guide to your extraordinary secret and self i'd yeah. love to, you to talk about that as well but do you but the question obviously i want to ask is, is do you think that the more that you do the work and the more that you start working on yourself and because I think one of your theories in your one of your, that theory in that book, which is really interesting, it's definitely making more and more sense in my life now. Is that I feel sometimes that this place is an unraveling of the things that you need to work on. And once you, like you said in your book, and um, once you live the perfect life, is that that's what we well, that's basically the outcome of the of this journey is to try and live out the perfect life. And that's making more and more sense to me. But it feels like the more that you start living more out the perfect life and obviously going through some things that you need to work on, it seems that the doors of perception also open. Yes, yes. Could you speak it, about that? Yeah, no, it, 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 this, this is opening the channels of communication between your everyday self, which is the, the part of you that's actually lives in linear time, exists within the canoma, lives within the simulation, and doesn't perceive anything other than what the brain allows it to perceive. But there is another part of your consciousness that is also manifest in the brain mm -hmm. which i call the daemon and the daemon is what many people would call their spirit guide their higher self many many terms used right through history this is not a new concept this is this is a you know and in the book the daemon i discuss this in great detail just how historical it is but this entity is the immortal you this is the you that's outside the simulation this is the you that exists within the pleroma Using an analogy, this is your game player. You're existing within a three-dimensional computer sim, like analogous to a computer simulation of your life. Programmed within that is the outcome of every decision you make within that life. Your daemon has lived this life for you and accompanied its edelon, different edelons. Mm -hmm. We are, each Edelon is different, but each daemon is consistent. And each Edelon, when it's born, is born with no memories that it's lived before. It's what the ancient Greeks used to call amnesis. Okay, It's the idea you drink the waters of the Lethe. It washes your memories clean and you go back and you live your life again. So you live your life again. I use the analogy, imagine you're playing a third-person RPG game. Okay, When you switch the game on for the first time, your on-screen sprite, which is your on-screen entity, just is born, yeah. isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's that there in front of you. And you can move it and you can make it run up and down the corridors or do whatever you want. Imagine that that entity on the screen has actually a level of independence. It has motivations 
and it learns as it goes along, but it only learns the information from the one game it plays. Mm. When you first start it, the game player, when you first start one of these games, you and the you as the game player and you as the on-screen entity share that life. You don't know anything about the layout of the game. You don't know what rooms are dangerous, which ones aren't, yeah. which inter- which beings you encounter that are going to be dangerous to you or not. But what happens is at some time or other, you're going to make a mistake in the game and the idol on the on-screen sprite dies. The game player then reboots the game and goes back to the start and starts the game again. But this time, the daemon stroke game player knows that there is a room you shouldn't go into or that person you should avoid. And what it does is it tries to guide subtly its Eidolon to make certain decisions and do certain things. This is the voice in your head that guides you. This is the voice that says, don't do this. This is dangerous. You know, we all get it, that kind of inkling. And actually the word inkling is something from old English that is exactly that. It's the voice in the head that guides you not to do things. Now, it means then that you will make different decisions motivated by your daemon to do different things. And every time you make a new decision that didn't happen in the last life, the daemon doesn't know any more than you do again. So the daemon is living a new life. But over many, many lives, hundreds maybe, the daemon understands the roots of a person's life. And it can then guide you into other areas of excitement and it can develop you. It will make you follow all the paths that you didn't follow last time. And all of that is encoded within what's called the zero point field. Okay, this is the background database for everything. And again, people will say, what is this guy talking? He's talking nonsense. Um, I suggest that you actually look up the very last paper that Stephen Hawking wrote before he died. He was working with a guy called Frank Hartle, who is a researcher at CERN. They came up with a hypothesis they called the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics. And Hawking suggests in this that the outcome of every decision that you can make and every outcome of everything that ever happens is already encoded in potentiality. You collapse the wave function of that decision, which collapses the reality to fulfill that decision you've made. And it's all to do with holograms. It's all to do with black holes. It's all to do with information. It's all to do with the Schwarzschild radius. And it's all to do with something called um, the um, uh, yeah, Hawking radiation, which is leakages that gets out of black holes. Powerful stuff. When you said there about the um, infinite, how you said the example of Stephen Hawking, how you said this information is always there all the time. It's interesting because when you take psychedelics, um, you are, I would say that you're faced with that, that I kind of pronounce it, the demon aspect of you. Damon. Damon, yeah. yeah, the demon aspect. I've never known what to pronounce it. I yeah. just go with Damon. The, the demon yeah. aspect. When you take psychedelics, you are faced with that. It's 100% sure, 100% guaranteed that when you're faced, you, you take psychedelics, all, all your consciousness, it seems to be like you're in hyperdrive and it's in the, 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 the sort of the gameplay, as you call it, is sort of like the higher self is um, is shown you on a sort of a on a hyper level compared to this reality that in mm. the awakening mm. reality of things that you yeah. need to work on and what Correct. things that you need to get more precise and clear on. Yeah, but spot on. Well, one of the things that my next project um, that I'm in discussions with somebody else on this of writing a book together is to because people have asked me all the time okay well and good you know you have this kind of daemon on stuff you know mm-hmm. it's all very interesting but how do i communicate with my daemon how do i how do i develop my daemon mm-hmm. and my and good myself question. myself and my associate we are we are working on a model whereby we're broadening it out what i'm going to do is i'm going to use as the basis jungian analysis mm-hmm. but i'm going to use my terminology and i think human beings probably we have four different levels, and this is breaking news, I've never really discussed this in any other interviews, this is the cool. first time I've originally discussed this, that I believe that there is the daemon and the Eidolon in the middle, okay? But behind the daemon is something I call the uber daemon, which is the collective unconscious of the whole of humanity, Jungian collective unconscious. That contains all the memories of all human beings and all sentient beings. The daemon can draw into that information, most can, in some occasions. Then you have the Eidolon, which is the in-game sprite. But then you have something that I call the Kakodemon. And the Kakodemon is what Jung would call the shadow. Kako is from Greek kakos, which means bad. Okay, and I was going to call the Uber Demon probably the Kalos Demon, which Kalos is Greek for good. 
So you have the Kalos demon and the Kako demon. This, your life is a balance between this kind of negative, dark aspect, the kind of negativity that we all have, you know, that thing that drags you down. Yeah, definitely. You know, the light and the dark. So it's almost coming down to almost Gnosticism and Manichaeism here. And myself and my associates, we're trying to build a model that can make this work. But on top of that, we need to also find techniques and methods whereby you can communicate with your own daemon. I'm already working on it. Um, I think there is a way, there are various ways this can be done. You can do it by deep hypnosis, different levels of hypnosis, because um, deep hypnotism, they know, for instance, um, very famous hypnotists have worked on this. There are levels that you can go down in terms of trance state. At a certain point, you change and a new entity is found. A new you comes out, and I think that's the daemon. So you can go down that way. But there's also methods whereby you can actually black out the visual fields of the dominant hemisphere and put the dominant hemisphere to sleep. If you do that, you create something new. Very, very radical, but another way you can actually communicate with the daemon is either to have your corpus callosum cut, which means you become a split brain patient, which is pretty extreme, or you can have something called a wada. And the WADA test is uh, WADA, and they put sodium amytal into your carotid artery, and it actually deadens your dominant hemisphere. And when your dominant hemisphere is dead, the daemon comes out. And these are all things I'm working on at the moment. So we are going to take this and we're going to run with this. And we're going to, this will blow the roof off. It really will. You know, I'm, I'm really, and I'm working with psychologists, I'm working with psychiatrists, I'm working with neurologists, neurochemists. There is, there is a way to do this. And this is the next book. Very interesting stuff, by the way. And um, just to quickly touch on as well, the aspect of the demon, with the demon in the mind. Do you think there's a purpose to that? Because it seems to be that this reality is, is a reality of clearly, like you said, that between the balance of the light and the dark within your own self. Do you think there's a, um, like, have we, do you ever ask the question, have we put ourselves in this place to, 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 to get ourselves ready for something or yes yes i do i think that this this life is for a reason this life is learning we are here to learn we are here to experience everything in order to evolve now somebody once facetiously said that consciousness and human beings and sentient beings were evolved in order for the universe to allow itself to become self-aware. In other words, the universe itself suffers from amnesis. It doesn't know what it is. There is another counter-argument, and I think this is a superb one. I really like this one. Uh, and it's the idea that we are all, for want of a better term, God, in a very loose term. And the argument is that if you were a supreme consciousness, a singular consciousness, and you're there for all eternity, what would you do? You'd get bored. So what would you do? You'd create your own soap opera. You would create planets, and on those planets you would inhabit it with sentient beings. And what you would do over a period of millions of years, you would embody yourself within the sentient beings there and live life to the full. Live everything, live every experience. And by doing so, you then become self-aware. Again, Philip K. Dick, um, in a, one of his novels called The Divine Invasions, very much has this concept that there is a young boy in that novel who is God, who's forgotten he's God. Mm. And again, going back to the ancient Greeks, what we need to do is to discover something called anamnesis, which is the loss of forgetting. Now, I will be doing with a group of friends of mine, um, a Greek publisher has recently bought the rights to two of my books. They bought the rights to the first book. The, the new owner of the company met me two weeks ago in London. We had a meal and he was so enthralled with the things I was saying. The next day he went out and bought the rights to another of my books, went straight over to the publisher and said, I've got to have this other book as well. Um, and we are planning to recreate Plato's Cave in Greece. Oh, that'd be cool. Okay, now, not only this, I have discovered a paper written from 1905 by an academic at the University of Harvard who did research on where Plato based his cave for the Plato's cave myth. I found it. It's a play, cave called the Cave of Vari, and it's in Lycabatis Hill, just south of Athens. You're going to have everyone going there now. Well, we're plan <laughs> we are planning 
We are planning. And people will be sleeping there now. Well, this is the thing. We <laughs> are planning. Pl- when you next go there, it'll be full of people. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate, really. Um, but you can go in there. You can end, go in there. It is a place you can go in. But what we're planning to do is to recreate. We did it last year at Dracolo in, in the UK, in Kidderminster, where we tried to recreate Plato's Cave and the Eleusian Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that the Eleusian Mysteries, the ancient Greeks, really twig this. Now, why this Greek publisher is interested in my work is that they are the world's biggest publishers of Greek philosophy. And they see so many implications of Greek philosophy and upgrading Greek philosophy to the 21st century in my writings that they want to make me the poster boy in raised commas. And they're really keen to relaunch the brand. The brand's called Cactus. And so what we're doing is we're going to be talking to the Greek government, we're going to be talking to the Greek Board of Tourism, and we're going to try and get access to these, these caves. When we do that, we're going to take some Lucia light devices down there with us. We're going to take some virtual reality stuff with us. Cool. Um, Sarah Janes, who you yeah, spoke, you spoke to a couple of days ago, Sarah's going to be involved in this. Dr. Carl Smith, the guy that had the experience with the entities that I talked about, the researcher, he's going to be involved in this. There's going to be a large group of us, and we're all going to be involved in recreating the Eleusian Mysteries and Plato's Cave. And we believe that we could probably place people into light trance states, altered states of consciousness. Dr. David Luke was involved from Greenwich University with the original Plato's Mm -hmm. Cave event that we did in in Dracolo. Sam Treasure was involved. Various people were involved in this. But we're going to take this forward and we're going to make it sensational. You know, this is going to be mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. All we need is the agreement of the Greek government to be able to do it and the finance and the sponsorship to get it off the ground. But once we get it off the ground... The television, right, that people are going to be fascinated. Television, really cool. everybody's going to be fascinated by this. I'm really looking forward to seeing that as well. And after you've done that, as done them experiments as well, I think we have to do another podcast talking about some of the things that you uncovered through replicating that. Yes. I think that'll be fascinating. We'll leave it there anyway. What a okay. podcast. As always, mind blown. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Cool. Sorry. Thank cool you. Again. Thanks, Dan. Now, come on, what a conversation that was. Always one of my favourite guests, Anthony Peak, and I will say that easily one of my favourite guests. And like I said, feel free to send over some any questions that you want um, if you for the Observe My Thoughts. If they don't get answered on this Observe My Thoughts, I will attack them on another episode of Observe My Thoughts because I definitely want to do some uh, Observe My Thoughts Q&As in the future. You guys seem to love the idea already, especially with some of the your amazing, intelligent questions that have already been sent over. You guys always blow my mind every single time and really just show again and again how awesome you all are. So anyway, thanks for listening to that podcast. It was a great one. It really was. Anthony Peake, he does. When I after, after sometimes when I do these conversations, guys, I walk away and my mind is just blown. And every single time I speak to Anthony, he does the same thing. He Sometimes he reaffirms things that I'm already thinking, but at times he also sends us on other rabbit holes. So anyway, just to play this conversation out, as I always do, this one is an upbeat one because I'm feeling in an upbeat mood, as you can tell. I'm just about to go out to look at the night sky, which I get very excited about. I really do, like a little kid in a candy store. But anyway, so this song is called Love. Sorry, it's called Everybody's Got to Live and the artist is called Love. It is a really cool one. So anyway, enjoy this upbeat song, Everyone's Got to Live by the artist called Love. Peace out and I will catch you in a few days time where I have another episode of Observing My Thoughts. Peace out. Everybody's got to live And everybody's gonna die Everybody's got to live I think you know the reason why Sometimes I go and get so good Then again it gets pretty rough But when I have you in my arms, baby You know I just can't, I just can't get enough Uh, Oh yeah Everybody's gotta live Yes they do And everybody's gonna die Everybody try to have a good time I think you know the reason why I saw a blind man standing on the corner yesterday, baby 
He couldn't hardly tie his shoes But he had a harmonica and a guitar strapped around his neck And he sure could, he sure could play the blues Oh yeah, everybody's got a little And everybody's gonna die Everybody's trying to have a, a good time I think you know the reason why I feel like I've seen just about a million sunsets She said if you're with me I'll never go away That's when I stopped and I took another look at my baby She said if you're with me I'll never go away Because everybody's got a little And everybody's gonna die Before you know the reason why I had a dream the other night, baby I dreamt that I was all alone But when I woke up I took a look around myself And I was surrounded by 50 million strong Oh yeah Everybody's gotta live And everybody's gonna die Everybody's gotta live Before you know the reason why Yeah Everybody's gotta live And everybody's gonna die